Hey, it's really good to be with you guys tonight. I am the pastor at Vintage. Uh, we love North Carolina State. There's a lot of state students that join us on Sundays. We love Campus Crusade. Uh, we want you to be in Bible studies here, go on retreats here, be in leadership here. Uh, and so if you need a, a local church to worship, uh, we would uh, invite you to join us. Uh, we have multiple campuses and seven services on Sundays. Uh, and so join us at one and, and just see what the Lord's doing. Uh, I'm going to pray for us and we'll jump in talking about loyalty uh, and what you serve, how that really uh, dictates your life. So pray with me if you would. Uh, God, we believe that there's no one here by accident. Even if they stumbled in uh, as they heard Wolfpack cheers, it was because you knew them, you know them, uh, you wooed them into this place. Uh, we pray that in this quiet moment you would settle hearts and minds and souls, uh, begin to do work that only you can do. Um, would you uh, for those who believe in you, somehow deepen their souls tonight. Uh, deep words make deep souls. Shallow words make shallow hearts. And so I pray that uh, your word would be deep here today. Uh, we love you, Jesus, and we ask these things in your name. Amen. So uh, Todd Smith, one of your staff members, asked me to come speak at Back the Pack, and it was an easy thing to do. I grew up on this campus. Uh, two of my grandparents were professors here uh, in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. One was food science and chemistry. He made the modern-day pickle. That's kind of weird, but that's true. Uh, my grandmother was a professor of English literature and etiquette. I don't know if you have etiquette classes, but I didn't have that when I was in college. Uh, but I, I grew up wandering around this campus. And as I thought about backing the pack, there's just lots of reasons why I would stand here and say that's a, that's a good thing to do. On an educational level, this is one of the premier universities in the entire world. If you say you're an engineer that's been trained at North Carolina State University, you get immediate respect. If you say you graduated from the design school and you still have a pulse, you get a job. That's just like constitutional law. You get a job. Uh, thousands of you will literally go uh, to lead government, lead in business, be doctors, be teachers. And so educationally, uh, let's back the pack. Uh, when I start to think about the people, I, I worked here for about five years after college. Uh, you, your professors, the administration here are the salt of the earth. You're some of the greatest people I've ever known. So uh, I back you as people. And then the athletic system is really on the rise. I think the football team is going to make a lot of people bleed this year, uh, and it'll be fun to watch. Uh, losing Wilson was, was tough, but State is always greatest when they're the sleeper team. So I predict another 9-4, and 10-3 and three type season. Uh, it should be a fun thing uh, to watch. My family will crowd around the TV, eat too much junk food, and I'll teach my three little kids to, to pull for the wolf pack. Uh, I thought in light of back to pack, we should do a little crowd interaction. Now, I'm not a huge fan of crowd interaction, so I'll make it really simple. I need you to think of a word that you would say if you're in favor of something and be ready to shout that word. And I need you to be ready to shout a word that you would shout if you really hate something. And just be ready, all right? Get that word. Now, I have a confession to make to you. And, and I need a little comforting. I need you to kind of settle me in here as we get started. And so I, I hope that you'll cheer for me. Uh, but I won't make you be liars. So, so just be ready, all right? You ready? Here's the confession. I graduated from UNC Chapel Hill. What do you think about that? <laughs> now, now, you might be thinking, why would they ask a UNC graduate to do back to pack? And the condition was that I publicly mocked the school that I went to. And so Todd Smith has put me up to this. Here's how I'll mock the school with a litany of jokes just for you. Uh, here's educational jokes about UNC. What does the average UNC student get on their SAT? 
drool. Uh, what is the only sign of intelligence in Chapel Hill? Riley, 25 miles. Uh, why do Carolina students put their diploma in their car so everybody can see it? So they can park in handicapped spots and not be arrested. Uh, football jokes, there's just hundreds of them. I, if you don't know, every one of our football players are in jail. And so here's, here's some jokes. If four UNC football players are riding in a car, who's driving? The sheriff. Uh, did you hear that UNC got a new defensive coordinator? Johnny Cochran. Uh, that's funnier. Come on, you can laugh at that one. Last one uh, about football and then one final one. Um, why should you never laugh at a UNC football player riding a bike? Chances are it's your bike. <laughs> and, and then here's the last one. It's quintessential. You've heard it. You can yell it out if you know it. Why is it so windy in Raleigh? Because Chapel Hill sucks. That's, that's my, my attempt to win you over. That's all the bad I'll do to that place that I like to call heaven. Uh, what I want to do over the next 20 minutes or so is to talk to you a little bit about loyalty. Uh, loyalty is a powerful force, and because of what NCSU will be in your life for the next three, four, seven years, uh, you're going to be loyal to this place. Uh, loyalty really is powerful. Here's how you respond to loyalty. You're willing to stand in a long line in February when it's negative 54 degrees outside to get tickets to a Duke State basketball game. When, when you get the tickets in your greedy little hand, you decide you need to skip class the next morning to kind of recuperate a little bit, forgetting that every class costs you about $194 a piece. You just get $500 worth of class. Your ticket costs you $500. Now you go to the game and you paint yourself up and you take your shirt off. And if you're a guy, you just broke the first rule of being a dude, never be naked ever. Don't even bathe naked, but you did it. And you cheer for hours. You beat Duke, which I'm thankful for. You, you rush Hillsborough Street and you start burning stuff. You realize it's your stuff and you really needed that $300 textbook, but it was worth it. You went to an $800 game and that's what loyalty does to you. Now, loyalty mandates massive expressions of your life. When something is great enough, it, it really dictates that loyalty. It's always true. If you talk to uh, first-generation immigrants to the United States, uh, they don't make much money. They don't seem to have a lot of liberty. They work 90 hours a week, 8 bucks an hour. But you ask them, what do you think about the United States? They love it because there's something about the United States that captivates them. Uh, ask or, or read books about men who have gone to war. And they, they were tortured. They were starved to death. They, they lost friends in murderous ways. But, but the, the nature of battle forges loyalty between two people who wouldn't otherwise have been bound together. Uh, great things mandate great loyalty in your life. And so the question that we need to ask is this, what's large enough to garner all of the worth of your life? Is there anything that large? Is there anything that potent that, that it would focus all of your loyalty, all of your attention, all of your service? Now, obviously, that's not a trick question, right? We're at a Christian meeting for Campus Crusade. I'm a pastor. You're shrewd people. Obviously, the answer is going to be God. But is that true? Is that really true? Is God really worthy of every moment of your life? And equally important, are you living in such a way that would demonstrate that God is worth the, the totality of, of your life? Now, the church that I serve 
is full of raging pagans who don't know Jesus. We have pretty devout atheists who make that known regularly, doubters and seekers, and, and they come often. And when we breach the topic of God or of faith or giving loyalty over to Jesus, they respond pretty quickly. That's, that's just irrational. Well, that's, that's mythology left over from a thousand years ago. That's blindness, and you should get rid of it. And if you're that person tonight, I, I get that pushback. Uh, when I was in school at that awful, awful place, uh, I studied philosophy and I double majored in biblical criticism under Bart Ehrman, and I struggled constantly with the concept of, is there God? And over those four years and over the last 10 years, I've, I've really continued to struggle. Is, is there really a God? And in that struggle, I've realized this. The burden of proof is not just on Christians to prove that there is a God, but if you've decided to be an atheist and a raging pagan, the burden of proof is equally on you to demonstrate somehow that there's not a God and therefore there's no worthiness of your life directed to that thing. Have you dug into that though? Like you're intellectuals by being in this place, you should be intellectually honest, but I don't find that the case often for most atheists. I don't see where they've really dug into the claims of Jesus and, and to the scriptures themselves. Now, I haven't seen them read intellectuals. Uh, some of the four leading scientists and philosophers and mathematicians believe today that science and religion don't, don't oppose each other. They're simply different mechanisms describing the same thing. And so doubt, this is a really safe place, crusade is for you to doubt and for you to struggle but, but be honest with yourself. Be, be intellectually honest and, and dig in. If you're a doubter or a seeker or a cynic, I would challenge you, read a guy named Alvin Plantinga. He's a philosopher and a believer, and I think that would help you dig in. So, so the question I really want to dig on some this evening is what's worthy of, of your whole life? Is, is there anything that worthy? Now, we're going to look at one verse from, from the Old Testament. It's a verse from Joshua right at the beginning of the Old Testament, and just a few sentences of background. Uh, the Israelites have recently been freed from slavery to the Egyptians. Uh, they've wandered through the desert for four decades. Uh, they've walked into what's now modern Israel. And God has won victory after victory after victory on their behalf. And, and so you would think that if there really is a God and he gave freedom and he gave victory and now he gives peace that these people would be loyal to that God, these people would serve that God and worship that God. But at the end of Joshua, he, he says these words in chapter 24, verse 15. Uh, follow along, if you will. Joshua's speaking to all of his people, and he says, And if it is evil in the eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So that question, what's worth your whole life, presupposes something. It presupposes that your life is actually worthy. It actually has value to it. Now, as followers of Christ, we believe innately that your life is valuable because you're a creation of him. But very specific for you as NCSU students, your life has not only innate value, but very specific value. Let me try to explain to you. On a level of wealth and resources, you have more value than 90% of the world today. If you live off $20,000 a year, you're in the top 10% of the wealthiest people on the planet. When you add up your dorm room and the food that you eat and the clothes that you wear, you, you'll find yourself 
in the top 10% of the wealthiest people right now is lowly college students. So, so you have some value or some worth on, on a wealth level. On an educational level, you have unbelievable worth. Uh, the, the, the stats in America are these. Uh, 19% of Americans have undergraduate degrees. So, so you're, you're way higher than the average American. Well, only 9% of Americans have postgraduate degrees. And if you look at the scene of the whole world and the inhabitants of the world, only 6% of the world has the opportunity that you have right now. On an educational level, you just have immense value. And then think about the networks and the connectiveness that you have. Usually, power and, and wealth and opportunity is rooted in, at its very most systemic level, it's rooted at you had connections that other people didn't. You have connections with professors. You're sitting beside peers who are going to become doctors and politicians and businessmen and businesswomen. You have connections there. And then the moment you graduate, you enter into an alumni base of hundreds of thousands of people. And so you have connections that most people don't. You're the wealthiest people on the planet, the most educated, the most connected. So I think that we have to come to a place where it's it's a pretty humble starting point for you. Whether you believe in God or not, there's, there's some humility of the worth of your life. Why? Because you didn't do anything to, to deserve it. You didn't do anything to earn it. I mean, maybe you studied a little bit in high school. Maybe you worked hard. Maybe you secured a scholarship, but you had nothing to do with the time in which you were born or the country in which you were born. You had nothing to do about your own intelligence. It's not like before you were born, you pre-ordered your memory and you pre-ordered the processor of your brain. That was just a gift. Two billion human beings live under the line of poverty and they're just as smart as you are. But for some reason, you have opportunities and choices that, that are just endless. So much has been entrusted to you. You can decide this day and every other day of your life what you'll serve, what you'll be loyal to, what you'll direct your life towards. Now, interestingly, and and sometimes as we read scripture and we think it's an ancient book, we think it really doesn't have anything to do with us. The verse that I just read and the people who are hearing the words of Joshua, they were in a very similar place as you are right now. They had recently been freed. Tyranny no longer dictated their lives. And so they could choose in liberty whatever they wanted. They had a massive army which protected them. No one could stand against them in terms of might and capacity. And so they didn't live under fear anymore. You can walk around in safety when you have a life like that. And then they walked into a land where they had cities that they did not build, vineyards that they did not plant. They walked into animals that were just endless to eat and to feed themselves. And so they were wealthy. They were wealthy men and women. And what does Joshua do? He looks at them and he warns them, are you worshiping false gods? Are you worshiping false gods? Now, the Israelites, they, they were worshiping false gods. And, and I want to tell you just a few of them. And, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to come into your brain. Maybe this doesn't really apply to me, but I'm going to turn it on you. I'm going to show you that, that we might worship exactly the same false gods that the Israelites did. So here are some of the false gods. They, they worshiped Baal, which was the god of the harvest. And, and, and to appease Baal, at times you had to sacrifice your own children to him. They, they worshiped the goddess of Asherah. She was a fertility god. And so they put Asherah poles all over Israel and they bowed down and they worshiped these poles. They worshiped Anath, which was the goddess of war. She was violent and she was cruel. They worshiped Moloch, who was the god of the underworld, hoping one day 
they would have peace. Now, it's easy for us to think, that's silly. I mean, we wouldn't bow down and worship a pole that we carved and believed that that's going to change our lives. But are we really that different? The Israelites wanted provision, so they worshiped the God of harvest. The Israelites wanted success and power, so they worshiped the God of war. And they wanted ease and peace, and so they worshiped the God of the underworld. We want provision. You want money. It drives our culture. We don't worship the the God of the harvest, but we do give our lives over to materialism and to capitalism. I mean, we never say it. We never say I'm a raging capitalist and I want to hoard stuff. But if we look at our lives, it's the case. You believe that if you have more money, you'll be more happy. Now, I believe that if I have more money, I can make my problems disappear. Throw some money at some different things. Celebrities in our culture show us that. Throw some money at people and what they're saying, they'll go away. We believe that if you have more stuff, you're actually doing better in life. You're winning the race. You're, you're better off than other people. And so we look at houses and cars. We look at the clothes that we wear. Nobody ever says it, but the moment that you get here, you start to look at the clothes that each other wear and, and you accept people by those clothes. And if I'm honest, your, your skinny jeans just stress me out. But, but that's what we do. We look, skinny jeans, I'm stressed out. Or that guy doesn't have skinny jeans on. And, and, and we, we judge people by that. So money is one of those things. But interestingly, as we spend the days of our life accumulating stuff, it never works. The average American, when they get married, has tried to accumulate so much stuff, they, they spend more than they make, and they enter marriage with $8,000 of credit card debt. Our case study on money making us happy just isn't working at all. I read an article a few years ago in a national publication They interviewed eight lottery winners who all won more than $100 million each. And every one of them separately said, I want to go back to the time before I had money. My friends aren't my friends anymore. My husband, my wife has divorced me. Everybody begs for money. I'm miserable. We think that worshiping capitalism, hoarding stuff, being materialist is going to make us happy. So we pursue it. We give our loyalty to it. But it it doesn't work. It never has. The Israelites wanted ease. They wanted peace, and so they, they worshiped a God that they thought would bring that. We want the same thing. We, we just call it happiness. As a culture, we have three unalienable rights. We have the right to life, the right to liberty, and the right to happiness. You've never known a day that you haven't had life. You've never known a day that you haven't had liberty. And so the only thing that you're left to pursue is happiness. And so, so we look at culture, and, and we say, what would make us happy? The first thing that we hear is this. If you would just be a hedonist, if you would practice open sexuality, you would find pleasure and finally find the desire of your heart. And so the sexual revolution just continues to revolve and revolutionize itself. They tried it in the 60s with the free love movement. It didn't work. Swingers tried it in the late 90s and the early 2000s. It didn't work. Now we have the, the friends with benefit culture. The only rule is there can be no strings attached. And so your happiness is defined by a seven-minute experience. It's gone immediately. And then you're left with this ridiculous, now I have to start it over and see what's going on. So we're we're, we're hyper-erotic culture looking for happiness. But we're not just hyper-erotic. We're also hyper-entertained. We'll spend $40 billion this year on porn. We'll spend billions of dollars on, on video games. Some say up to $8 billion dollars. We spend billions and billions on movies and television show and travel, thinking that these things will make us happy. Yet there's a psychologist in the UK 
who puts together a study every year, the most happy nations on the planet. The United States isn't even in the top 20. Sometimes we're, we're 50. Iceland is at the top. They're so cold, they don't even know they're, they're alive, but they're happier than we are. So it's just failed us. And so this is where the conclusion comes. And, and I hope that, that you'll, you'll hone in just for a moment. We'll end rapidly, but, but hear this. The Israelites worship false gods, believing they would bring provision and pleasure and freedom and, and life that they wanted. And instead of doing that, all it brought them was the destruction that the gods had themselves. They worshiped the goddess of war. She was cruel. They became a cruel people. They worshiped the God of the harvest. He demanded the sacrifice of their children, burning them to death. And they they participated, believing that that would make them whole and that would make them right. And so what happened is they became like the thing they worshiped. They became like the thing they were giving their loyalty over to. That makes sense, doesn't it? It's not that if, if you are loyal to North Carolina State, then your life will be a disaster. Loyalty on the largest level of your heart is what do you really think is going to make you happy? What do you really think is going to make you satisfied? What's really going to bring peace into you? Because the thing you pursue, you're going to become like. It makes perfect sense. When when you're loyal to North Carolina State, you do not become a Chapel Hill fan. The whole freshman pledge was how much you hate Carolina. That's loyalty to North Carolina State. So what do you think is going to make you happy in your life? What's going to satiate the desires of your heart? Hear me in this. Lean into it 100%. I believe that God is sovereign. And if you lean into the wrong thing, it will take you to a place where you finally realize that it won't do what you think it will do. Lean into it. If you think success is going to make you happy and satisfied, lean into it 100%. You're the smartest, wealthiest people on the planet. You will be successful. But if you think climbing the corporate ladder is going to satiate your heart when you're 35 or 45 or 55, finally in that moment, you'll look up and see the Lord. If you think money is going to make you satisfied, go for it. But I tell you tonight, there's never been a wealthy person who said, money made me happy. There's never been a wealthy person who said, I had as much money as I could have. I didn't want any more. It's this hunger that just rules your life. And so we end with the point that we started with. What's worthy of your life? We believe that Jesus is the only thing worthy of your life. And the scriptures promise, if you give loyalty to him, if you give service to him, if you follow him with all the aspects of your life, you will become like Jesus. That's what you need more than anything else. Jesus is the God of mercy. And you need mercy. I desperately need mercy. I've rejected him and I've hated him. I've crushed men and women around me. I've degraded society. And God looks at me and says, in the moment when you realize that, it's the moment that you can receive grace. Love me and worship me and serve me and you'll get mercy. You as a generation love justice. If you want justice, you need to worship Jesus. And here's the amazing thing. The justice of Jesus says, you deserve to be punished for your brokenness. Your hatred really does matter. That's the justice of God. Your rape really does matter. Your racism really does matter. But in the, the, the most beautiful irony in the history of humanity, you don't receive the justice that you deserve. 
Jesus received your justice. He took your hatred. He took your racism. He took your rape. And he killed it. He crucified it. And now you can pursue justice for other people because Jesus will take what they deserve too and give them mercy instead. If you won't love and you won't love, I guarantee you that, the only way that you'll really find a love that's lasting, the only place that you'll find a love that is for you, the unlovable, is at the feet of Jesus. He loved his murderers. He loved the thief beside him. And he gave life to those who asked for it. So Joshua definitively says, today I've decided that my family and I are going to serve the Lord. We're going to serve Jesus. Why don't you decide today? If you're already a follower of Jesus, you need to look inside and really see what's the thing that you're directing your life towards. What's the thing that you're, you're really after? And if it's not Jesus, figure out how to turn and go back the other way. Get in a Bible study, walk with friends, worship Jesus. If you're a doubter or seeker, a cynic, a skeptic, why don't you decide tonight to start pursuing things? I'm not going to guilt you or manipulate you in any way, but tonight's the night that you decide, I'm going to start to dig in. I've read too many things on the side of doubt. It's time now to read things on the side of faith. Would Would you hear the word tonight? Jesus loves you enough that he gave his life for you And simply believing in him will give you right reconciliation with him. Take that trade. Worship Jesus and you will become like him. I love you. My church loves you. Crusade loves you. We only want goodness for you. And the only place that you'll find goodness is in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we ask you that that in this moment, when when this many people are, are quiet, you would send the Spirit of God to do work that only you can do. I imagine there, there's a thousand of us here who want to follow you, and yet we, we find parts of our life that it is dictated to other things. We, we've been directed by finances and money and the desire for wealth. We, we want pleasure more than anything else. God, you want to give us good things. You want to give us pleasure and resources. You're not trying to do bad things to us or rob us of goodness. But the only thing that's lasting is Jesus. And when we have him, we're free from the command of other things that are lesser, that would crush us. Let us as followers give our lives to you again. And Father, I pray that in this moment, that doubters and cynics, to their own great surprise, would be born again by the Spirit of God in this very moment. They would believe that Jesus really gave his life and resurrected. And by holding on to him, trusting him, they too can have life eternal with him. We love you, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.